On this episode of Final Fangirls, I interview screenwriter and director Chris Levitis. We'll talk about his introduction to film, directorial preferences, funny stories on set, and the ins and outs of his 2019 short, The Wound, which stars resident scream king Chris Lemke. There will be vague discussions of gore and violence in the horror genre. Viewer discretion is advised. Hey guys, and welcome to Final Fangirls, the podcast that celebrates all things film from a fangirl's perspective. I'm your host, Tatiana, and today I am joined by the oh-so-talented Chris Levitis. Oh, thank you again so much for having me. <laughs> We're so excited to, you know, have you on here and talk about your your works, your directing, all of that. We're big fans here. Yeah, I really appreciate it. The, uh, it just seems like you guys actually, you know, really looked at the work and, uh, there's nothing that can make uh, uh, an aspiring artist happier than uh, when someone just tries to go deep. Like when you messaged me, uh, I was like, oh, wow, you really got it. Uh, so thank you so much. Of course. Yeah, we were we've we've been like keeping up with your stuff for obviously a while, as you know, but we like then deep dived again. Like we were rewatching everything, texting each other back and forth. Like, okay, do you think we should ask about this? Or what do you think about this? And bouncing questions off each other. Fantastic. I'm so curious. What I'm so curious for the questions. Yeah, bring it. Okay. So first, if you can just like kind of tell us about what you do, anyone listening who might not know about your work and stuff. Well, all I want to be doing in life is uh, directing movies. Uh, but it turns out that it's a pretty competitive industry. There's a lot of people that uh, want to do this, uh, and rightly so, because, you know, movies, in my mind, are pretty much, like, the best thing. Just for me, like, it hit pretty young uh, when I realized uh, what a director did. I don't know if it was young. I was, I was like, nine, ten years old, and it was just a conflation of a couple of things. It was, like, a matter of looking through a camera for the first time, just a still camera, and uh, just figuring out, wow, you could compose a shot. And then it would feel like that shot would mean something. And around that same time, I remember seeing Time Bandits and realizing, oh, there is someone making this. You know, the Terry Gilliam's aesthetic is so brash. And it's like really great uh, as, as a young person, it's like, you can really see there's someone doing something here because uh, it's this is not Robert Bresson or something. This is someone who's really going for it in such an exciting way. And from then on, like then, you know, discovering like Stanley Kubrick, the whole, it's a cliche at this point, you know, talk about the first time you saw 2001. Yes. Yeah. But it's, it's so iconic. It, I, I mean, also, I think the first thing I saw visually on television it was at like 9 p.m. and it was just on a box TV, you know, it wasn't in the proper aspect ratio or anything. And I was begging my mom to let me stay up and finish it because I it, I, I was, again, this is around nine or 10 years old, but just the visual abstraction of it was something I'd just never experienced before. And I remember asking like, oh, what does it mean? And her response was, well, it means whatever you want it to mean. And I... I had never heard that before, that some that something could possibly be that. Um, I don't think my mom's right. I actually think 2001 is a pretty specific thing. 
but no, I love I love the idea that so many people bring their own interpretations to it. That of course is uh, what makes it maybe so enduring. But you know, early experiences like that, it's like I this is I want to dedicate my life to this, no matter what it takes. So yeah, that's sort of uh, the inception of it all, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, so I know people can find your work. You have like um, The Wound, which is your short film on Vimeo, right? So we can, I'll make sure that link is there so everyone can watch that. Beautiful, excellent masterpiece, you know. Well, you know, I had the great portion of getting to cast Chris Lemke, Prince Among Men, as you know. Yes, huge, huge fans. <laughs> so yeah, obviously he elevated uh, a kind of silly idea so I had Chris, and then I also had this guy named Elisha Christian uh, as my director of photography. Mm -hmm. He's shot some of the most beautiful films of the last 10 years. He made a movie called Columbus, which is just visually just feels perfect. So having Elisha and Chris, the combination of really those super talented people, it, yeah, I just couldn't mess it up. I feel like um, with your work, especially like something I wanted to make sure I complimented here is that I feel like you can tell that there's like a lot, like there's a sense of respect amongst you and like the crew and the cast of like, you guys all are so good at your own individual skills and what you bring to the film or whatever, um, whatever you're making. And it's like, there's like that that friendliness of like familiarity that you guys that you have with people that you've worked with multiple times or continue to work with but also that like professionalism of you can tell that everyone on set is like respecting each other's art I feel like I've been so lucky to work with like just ridiculous crews like on really tiny things here and there even going back to like the feature that I did my key grip had worked on the pilot for Cheers. Oh, wow. And it was like, wait, why are you here? And he just like, he still just liked to work, which is extraordinary. Uh, but no, I think I, I really, I think after, you know, you discover what directors do and, you know, the te certain technical aspects of filmmaking and what it takes, the first, the first thing you really realize is it's just all about collaboration. And that's, that ends up being maybe even more exciting than your sort of original idea of what it was to make movies because you get great people in a room working on the same idea and then there's it's so satisfying when people bring further ideas to it you know when you get this snowballing effect where uh, you have this what you thought was quite good you know you really thought you had something worked out and then you have wonderful people around you like Elijah or Chris or uh, you know uh, I have had the great pleasure of collaborating with uh, a guy named Michael Mohan who's just such a talented writer director and one thing that we discovered early on was like working on working by yourself that's one thing uh, if you can have the focus to do that great and if you have the confidence to, in, in yourself and believe in your own ideas, fantastic. Then if you collaborate with someone, you partner up, it, it isn't twice as good. It's like 10 times as good because the ideas are just piling on. 
and then from then on, when you work with like a visual genius, like I had with Elisha on the wound, if he comes up with like an idea for a shot, you need to listen to him because he's not just thinking like, oh, this will be pretty or something. He's thinking story-wise. And that's the thing with a good crew that I learned pretty early on, like even that key grip on that feature, like the second or third day of shooting, he's like, so you don't like cowboys. And I, it, we weren't shooting a Western. We were shooting this very, uh, you know, it was shot all in interiors. And what he was saying was that there's a certain size of shot that's traditionally called a cowboy shot. And then there's a snake biter shot. You want to avoid those. That means when you cut someone off at the ankles. Okay. I know that from art. They they recommend that when you're drawing in art is never, never ended at a, at a like joint. Exactly. Exactly. It just looks wrong. And to know that all of your crew is actually paying attention and knows these things, you better be, you better show up and know your shit as uh, best you can because you are being judged, but being judged by the crew is like pretty great because you, uh, you'll make more, I will make more of an effort to do better. And then also if you're actually working, if they're on board and paying attention, God, their ideas are just, they just, uh, again, uh, the collaboration is the thing. So yeah, you saying that there's some level of coherency or intimacy uh, that it seems like we're all working. I really hope, that, I hope that's true. Uh, I wanna work with all those people again. Yeah, Brooklyn and I were talking about it. I was like, you can just like tell, like it's it's so palpable in Chris's work and you just, you feel it. There's like the, like I said, this good familiarity, but like it doesn't take away from the professionalism of each person's individual skill, which I love. Yeah, they're all very good at their jobs. <laughs> um, so you had mentioned a couple like directors that you saw early on that kind of inspire you know were first inspirations for you is there any one of those or a different director that you kind of like noticed that you channel now because they inspired you and you're like wait I kind of did something similar to them here well there is someone I've been trying to channel um yeah I started off you know just being so entranced by visuals you know and I spent, that was sort of my entry point that's why oh just looking through the camera was so seductive um, the idea of composing images just was so exciting. But at a certain point, I just realized that, you know, well, what, coming out of film school, I thought I was just going to get to be a director and that people would be, you know, throwing scripts at my feet. And uh, it turns out that that wasn't the case. And actually, Finding getting a hold of a good script is so rare. They're so hard to come by, so valuable. And therefore, uh, you know, I had to start writing. I just realized that I wished I realized it even earlier than I did, but glad that I got there when I did, because uh it it is uh not the easiest thing to learn. Writing screenplays is so specific and challenging. So I have now gone from like being like the, like loving like Tim Burton as a kid to being sort of more in like less entranced by uh, really stylistic choices and more interested in 
directors who just feel really internal and they don't have to show off at all with the camera. I don't know if I'll ever be capable of getting to that point, but I'm, in terms of, when you go back to channeling people, yeah, Celine Shiyama is, she did Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which just, when I saw that movie, I had to go back and watch the previous work. And I'm just so, she's just, what she does is so magical. There's, I don't, usually, you know, with the thing with writing that's so tricky is sort of, you know, hiding the exposition, just being taken away with the story. You never want the audience to feel, of course, like you're laying the breadcrumbs and you just want to be submerged. And that's quite tricky to do. And I think Shima is just the best at it right now. So um, yeah, she's, um, she's my muse at the moment. I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, I love too what you said about, you know, exposition and stuff. Brooklyn and I are both writers. That's our thing, like fiction writing and stuff. So we're always doing that with each other and being like, can you read this? And sending each other documents that are a million pages long, you know? And um, I did an article piece recently um, detailing, you know, it's it's how much harder it is when you got a screenplay and you're having to limit, you know, you can't, it's not just these paragraphs of you can do all this artsy writing and flowery writing and all these details, you know, you're like, directions dialogue you know and and so you've got to condense it all into a much smaller medium but it has to have like the same impact that it would if it were a novel you know that's the trick of it which is why I don't think I could ever write screenplays because I'm such a flowery writer well I totally started off of course writing you know fiction and prose like you and I and I was so boy I loved adjectives uh, and describing things. And as you say, the screenwriting format sort of uh, wants the opposite. It really forces you to focus on just what the story is versus sort of the window dressing. It's just, uh, it, and getting to the immediacy of that, I think to some people uh, it comes more naturally than others. But for me, I definitely have to just go over and over and over and just keep pulling back and asking myself, like, what does this mean? And then being able to try and visualize it, right? Because it's even if, oh, those pros are nice and sharp on the page, they have to be, it has to all be images. It just goes back to this is, it's, it's a movie. So that's what you always want to be trying to create. But getting to that point where you like can concentrate it down enough to be like, oh, this is exactly, this is what the scene is about. And it starts from A and it goes to B to C. And hopefully there's slight visual indications that take you to B to C, whether they be behavior or, um, oh gosh, the weather or whatever it is, you know, you're trying to pull whatever ideas you can to tell that simple visual story. But telling a simple visual story is just seems to me to be quite complicated. I I love looking at um, certain scripts, like I'll like really enjoy a movie or something, and then I'll go and find like the screenplay or, you know, and I, I love then going through that and and seeing, you know, what the most obvious differences are in just like, oh, that this was really simple on paper and 
then that scene is so, you know, extravagant or detailed when you're watching it visually. And that's like such a great contrast. Yeah, there's some really famous examples of that. I don't know. Did you have one in mind that when you were just saying that? Um, yeah, I recently, when I was writing that article, I used um, Reservoir Dogs by Quentin Tarantino for, you know, as an example, because I was detailing how we are like, um, like kind of ingrained into organizing things to keep track of, like our brain will automatically organize things um, and categorize things. So I was talking about how by giving each guy a different name, like Mr. Brown, Mr. Pink, you know, you have a better memory of them as opposed to here's eight people all at the beginning and you have to remember all their names, you know. Um, and so that one was one where it's like, you know, the infamous diner intro and it's like on paper, it's just very like, he says this, he says this, he says this, he says this. And then you watch that scene and it's like, so, so much more, I guess. Yeah. The, the colors thing and introducing that many characters at once on the page, it looks so bad. It's just, you're asking the reader to memorize a whole bunch of, and we don't know anything about them. It's the, it's a nightmare. It's the worst thing in screenwriting. It's like, it's like trying to have like, like a party scene or a wedding or something in the very beginning. And it's like all these character names, it just looks like vomit on the page. It's, uh, it's a, so yeah. And then in terms of the sparseness thing, you're saying, oh, cause then, and then we go to the diner and he doesn't say anything about the fact that we're wrapping around the table or anything like that. Yeah. It's, it's more just like Mr. Brown and then like a dialogue line and then like Mr. Blue dialogue line, you know. The most extreme example I know of that is uh, in the original Matrix script. Uh, when the gun battle happens, when they're going to break Morpheus out, there's a blank page that says insert a uh, massive gun battle here. And then it's like six minutes of screen time or whatever, I, uh, which is kind of brilliant. And also just, it's just a wonderful cheat too. And it's like, who wants to read all that prose about, you know, uh, I mean, how many times can someone pull the trigger and how many shells can drop onto the ground before it's like, all right, we get it. <laughs> I think um, what you said though, about also introducing characters, I feel like I could even point that out in like your, um, your short film, a good dinner party or you know I know you worked on that with um Zane okay good. I didn't want to take credit for it no yeah I just meant we're talking about it through your eyes but obviously giving Zane the credit there where credit's due but like that is a good example of like okay here's like a bunch of people here's a dinner party keep track of them yeah precisely that short was born out of a conversation that we kept having Zane and I which was um it was we we have a deep appreciation for dinner table scenes. They are sort of like, in some ways, I think harder to do than like really complicated chase scenes. The coverage is really challenging, getting the eye lines right, plus having all the characters in one space and having to service them all. It's this wonderful balancing act that uh, it's really easy to mess up. And uh, I think the, so yeah, the original uh, that came out of her just being like, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna prove that I can do it. And she put forth certain constraints like that there's no camera movement, you know? And so we could really edit it. Uh, it wasn't a situation like, Tarantino was going for in that diner scene where he was trying to get really long shots and he misses a lot of them in Reservoir Dogs. A lot of them are really off 
And then I feel like, I don't know, have you seen Hateful Eight? Yes. There's some in there that are perfect. There, It's almost like he wanted to redo his diner scene with multiple people at the table. and Table, yeah, when they're eating, yes. And the, the focus pulls are just so perfect. Every And like the timing of when we get to every, oh, it's, it's magnificent. It's like I have, he probably spent a week doing that. It, it's immaculate. Um, but anyway, dinner table scenes, we love them. Gosh, I haven't looked at that short in a while. I wonder if it worked because like everyone's just introduced all at once, and then you can sort of get to know them hopefully as you go along. Yeah, I mean, we loved it. That's one of our favorites. That's when we talk about sometimes, and we'll be like, "Do you remember Leopold?" <laughs> That's our. I still see. I have seen even tweets sometimes that are like thinking about Chris Lemke as Leopold, and I'm like, "Okay, I respect this person." A prince among men. Truly. So, because all those shots are static and a lot of them are two shots and some are four shots and some you know have everyone at the table we were able to do all these invisible split screens to retime uh everything like just little tiny things were like a, to have a character like one character would look to the left and then in a different take a different character would look to the right and we could create this tiny little moment between them uh, that wasn't actually there in the original uh, take, but it was so fun to try and like, just get like a little bit, make it just a tiny bit more funny by uh, making those little adjustments. Um, that was something uh, I took enormous pleasure in. And I'm saying that now and I'm kind of regretting it because I'm like, now I feel like I've like really tweaked actors performances in ways that are dishonest but uh I don't think that I think that at at a certain point you know they're the acting like you guys like you said it's it's a matter of collaboration they're like okay here's my acting here's my great acting all of this you know and you're like hey here's my great directing and then here's my great editing so I feel like it just as long as it's being worked to create something you know collaborative that is like so excellent then I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with that. I don't do that. <laughs> um, so I know we kind of wanted to talk about like a good dinner party and the wound and stuff. And just, you know, is there like a difference? What What is like the main difference that you have versus in filming those or working on those versus like very like long, long films, like, you know, full, full length films, like the penthouse and all of those things? Okay. Well, so I'm probably not the best person to I because I've only done the one feature and that feature was shot in 10 days. Oh wow, okay. So that is the longest shoot I've ever had the pleasure of directing. And in that way, it was I mean the best thing about that, well, two things. Definitely the best thing about that was meeting Ryder, who and I are really good friends to this day. So that having our relationship that was this being the starting point uh, in that way that I have romantic feelings about the film. But uh, the thing with doing the features is, again, it goes back to the whole crew collaboration thing, which is you're, you're getting the opportunity to live in this uh, bubble together. And you can't all help but focus on the same thing. And when else in your life are you surrounded by 
you know, 20, 50, however many people, and everyone has this singular goal in mind over the course of days. And, you know, all these the relationships get all complicated and um, the thing evolves in ways you never could have predicted because you're dealing with all of these personalities. We're all bringing things to it. Um, in that way, I mean, that's basically how I want to spend most of uh, if I could spend most of my life just doing that, I really feel like the maybe the best thing about Wes Anderson, who I'm of course a fan of, but he's just figured out like the way to like have an ecology of filmmaking around him. You know, he's like, he's they are like this traveling circus and the idea of having like a film family just seems so great. And then, so that's the great thing I think about doing features. Yeah, that makes sense. And honestly, with shorts, I could go probably the rest of my life without having to beg people to give me equipment and come out for a terrible or no rate. Um, you know, I, 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 at this point, I hate doing that to people. And, you know, I, I, I think that I have a really smart producer friend who said, at this point, if you want to break through with a short, I mean, they're good to practice with, yes. But if you're actually trying to make a short that gets you a job, gets into Sundance somehow. It has to be so immaculate. It has to be so flawless. And you have to get so lucky that it might actually be just worth spending that little bit of extra time to try to get a feature. Because at least there's somewhere to go with the feature. And, and features aren't looked at in the same way. It doesn't have to be a diamond, you know? a genre film that just like hopefully checks the boxes to enough of an extent um so yeah i don't even though i always want to be making something in a short seems more within reach than a feature uh at this point really trying to just do features i love that i think that um you bring up you know a great point and i i actually just saw a post detailing that exact kind of conundrum the other day which is that like everything is like short now you know you can on like instagram like a reel or a tiktok or all of these things are really condensed and you see people making you know like mini like mini mini movies that are 30 seconds long and it's just these you know and and they can blow up really quickly so people are cycling through that a lot more and that type of content is being consumed very like rapidly almost so um there is it's pretty like tough competition I would assume in in the shorts you know because like you said it's it's a lot more accessible for people to be doing that and so you've got all these people who are you know following the same dream all doing these shorts and like you said that makes it that then when you publish the one you're like this one's got to be perfect yeah did you uh I can't think of the name of the Australian guy's movie like talk to me talk to me because they, those guys got that that's how they got their start doing they were doing youtube shorts and i guess the thing with that is like the, the question is always like long form so different you know it's uh again you still the the writing curve creating causality in a short like knowing the end and therefore starting somewhat articulately in the beginning in a way that coerces you into the end from the beginning to the end on a short, it's like, that's something you can sort of hold in your head before you even do it. A feature, the idea of 
figuring out what that incite, the perfect inciting incident is, which is going to lead you to that climax, is uh, much different than conceiving of a short. So, but those guys crushed it. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So in a way, I guess the thing is, is like you're just using the shorts as a way to build, figure out how to structure sequences. I have no idea if a bunch of other people are making the jump from doing short TikTok. Uh, do you have any idea about this? I mean, are, are these people like baking? Yeah, I have seen a decent amount of people post kind of, I know that now on TikTok, you can post like up to 10 minutes. So um, or some people can, I think you have to have a certain amount of followers. I know I unlocked it. So it was pretty easy. So I assume like one or 200 followers. So I have seen like a decent amount of like, like, you know, stories. I don't know what they would, you know, count as because they're very short. So I don't know if they're short or a mini or a whatever, but, um, I have definitely seen like some of those in the, you know, three to five minute mark and even the 30 seconds, um, become, then that person's account kind of like blows up and they're like, oh, this is like what I want to do. And then they're like, okay, now I'm posting longer shorts on YouTube and making those transitions into bigger and bigger projects. Makes sense. <laughs> um, so speaking of horror movies, since you brought up Talk to Me, um, obviously we're, we're big horror fans. That's kind of how Brooklyn and I met because we were in the same circles online. And I was like, hey, we should be friends. Um <laughs> So do you have like a horror movie favorite or a favorite final girl? Cause that's, you know, our whole thing. Yeah. So this is fun. Horror film. So are you talking like franchise? Um, any horror film, it doesn't have to be a franchise. It can just be in the horror genre. <laughs> got it. Got it. We're not going to do the whole like, oh, is this a horror film thing? Right. We can't go down. No, you're good. If the, uh, if the uh, um, pitch to you is like it, um, a haunted house in space. Do you happen to know what that would one would be? What, I believe that was the original pitch for this movie. A haunted house in space. But yeah, no, I think it was it. So it's alien. Okay, okay. I was trying to think of like space films. I don't know why, but I first thought of like the Cube movies because I was like, even though they're not in space, I was like that type of aesthetic, I guess. Yeah, those I love those first three Alien movies just so much. There's certain, and I, and I and not because they scare me at this point. In fact, it's sort of the opposite. I would say, I just find them all so immersive. They all do that thing of creating a world, and I think, especially in terms of rewatchability, I just I kind of want a warm bath aesthetically you know i and i think those movies just oh i just want to soak in them um and i feel like gosh the idea of just being able to create a world that cohesive that evocative oh it just seems like the apotheosis of the craft i love i love how you said like you know like soaking in the, like in the ba warm bath of a film because that's definitely how Brooklyn and I are. We're like, we're the type to like rewatch our favorite movies constantly. Um, and we'll always laugh because she's like, I have so many to watch. And I'm like, I know, like I have so many more to watch. And, but it's like, there, there is such a comfort in a movie that is so well-made that you have such emotion toward and being able to sit down and you kind of like, you know, what's going to happen. So it's like, you're prepared emotionally, mentally, and you can just enjoy it again and again. 
Yeah, rewatchability has become like a big thing. In fact, there's a podcast that I listen to called The Rewatchables. And, you know, I remember uh, like a 10 year, oh gosh, like a decade or so ago, some friends and I got together and we all did our favorite films from every year that uh, we've been alive. And some people's priority was like the most important film that, of that year. Of that year, yeah. Yeah, and it could be, maybe it was the Academy Award winner, usually not. Uh, but a good one was like Ryder, actually, his criteria was what will I, what would I most want to show my son? That's a beautiful uh, way to go about this, absolutely. But mine was rewatchability. You know, it was the ones from each year that I had kept coming back to. And some, well, there were so many that were just like genre movies. Yeah, something like, alien i just think you because it's so beautifully detailed but also so, so visceral and of course in terms of final girls i don't think we think of ripley in that way oh absolutely i see everyone calls her a final girl online absolutely 40 minutes of that movie she's just running through steam and strobing lights and it's um i think one of the most beautifully sustained pieces of uh, suspense that exists, uh, I just think. But, uh, oh good, okay, so I'm glad. So, okay, I'm, I, I was, I, I thought I was being uh, off and being like, or being, um, no, you know, you know, Ripley, obviously, final goal, top three, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, I know we were like making our introduction posts and I was like having to go through each final girl and being like, oh, I got to pick who my favorite is for our introduction post. But it was so difficult because there's so many good ones. I have one I wanted to bring up that uh, I'm just curious if you've heard of. It's not a film that I tend to recommend to people because it's so sadistic. Have you heard of Martyrs? Yeah, I knew that's exactly where you were going with that. Well, you should have saved me. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, of course you did. Of course you did. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I wonder if it's going to be like Martyrs or if it's going to be like Salo or I was like trying to go through them. I was like, okay, which one are we getting at here? <laughs> yeah. So you, you knew it was going to be just upsetting. Have you been able to, have you watched that whole film? Have I watched Martyrs? Yeah. Um, I've watched part of it. I can't, the, the skin is really a lot for me. The skin peeling. But you made it to there? Yeah, I've like watched through the sections and stuff. It's just really a lot. I, I wouldn't recommend anyone watch it. <laughs> yeah. Um, my one movie that I will never, I can never sit through is The Human Centipede. I don't, it's just for me, I have like, um, I have like, like, I'm a clean freak and I have like a phobia of germs and stuff. So when I found out what that movie was about, I was like, we're not even going to attempt that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I failed to make it through that as well. I was like, we're not even, I, do, I, I like have not even tried to hit play on that. I'm just like, that's, we're just going to keep that one far, far away from me. Yeah, I, I couldn't make it through that. And then get, I got through Martyrs and I was like, I'm never watching that again. I, was, I cannot, and I felt, I felt bruised afterward. I had to go to an event and I remember walking outside my place and having to lean uh, a telephone pole because I was feeling it, that movie made me feel dizzy i felt so punished by it and i just i i respect it in a way i also question whether it should exist and for sure i was never going to watch it again and uh i i did end up revisiting it 
<laughs> that's just that's honestly the horror movie thing like you just you're like I can't do this ever again and then you're like maybe I should just like check it out like just one more time it's like this itch that you uh no you couldn't scratch but uh um recently I've, I've been trying to get through all of Tim Roth's filmography that's my current thing um I'm like 30 percent not even 30 percent or like 20 percent so like 22 films into like 112 or whatever um and so I was watching his directorial debut um the war zone and I was like I, that was I had to tap out I was like I can't do this it's one of the bleakest films I have ever sat through it's just oh he's so cruel oh my god it's relentless I was like I was texting Brooklyn she was like are you okay and I was like dude I, I think I have to tap out and I you, I can usually sit through like a lot but that was one where I was just like I don't know if I have the stomach to get I realized I had like 40 minutes left and I was like "Ooh, that's a lot to go it doesn't lighten up but I was like I'm sorry Tim I'm trying to get through all of your filmography but you're making it difficult did you see Resurrection yes love that movie it's so good I I have so many thoughts about that I was again that was one I was like talking about forever and I was just like no the I was like showing everyone I know I was like you have to watch this scene like I don't even care if you don't want to sit through the rest of the movie just like please enjoy this right here can I ask how you saw it originally um I saw it on Hulu it was on Hulu I think so just watched it alone mm -hmm. just curious like because like that it has a really intense ending and I had the pleasure of being able to see it for the first time with a group of people, some of whom were absolutely crawling out of their seats and could not handle it. Um, I remember laughing quite a bit because it was making everyone so uncomfortable. And that was how I was choosing to deal with it. Also, I do think it's quite funny. I, I, I totally get that. I'm the type of person where I like drag. I like dragged my sister to see the new Saw film. And she was like, do I have to see this? And I was like, you have to come with me. I want to go see it. And she was like, okay, okay. And then she's like going like this. And she's like, looking at me. And she's like, I have to go. I think we need to leave. And I was like, you're fine. We're sitting through this. I must say I'm quite envious of that. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been in a theater. Uh, oh, that's actually... Not totally true. I just saw a movie called The Zone of Interest. The legacy of this film would be what it does not show. At the same time, I was kind of watching the film between my fingers because, because of what, what it wasn't being shown. I was so, I was made so uncomfortable by it. That's the kind of thing now that gets under my skin. I can't think of a horror film that actually really, especially like a slashery, how was Saw, by the way? Um, honestly, I ranked it, I ranked it, like, I said, it's, like, not as good as the first three movies, but, like, at least better than, like, at least, like, five through seven, ranking, ranking above there, but I think that that is mostly just because you had Tobin Bell and Shawnee Smith, like, reclaiming their roles and being the front and center, like, I think if they hadn't done that, then maybe it wouldn't have been that good, and I'm definitely, like, a gore fanatic, um, I had like an SFX phase where I was doing all the makeup and stuff. So I was appreciative of the um, the gore there, that it was a little less um, SFX, like computer designed than the previous ones, especially like Saw 3D. <laughs> got it, got it. Yeah, gore, really, really, really hard to do. Real stuff is such a pain on um, the wound. I wanted him to be leaking blood as much as possible 
And boy, was that a nightmare. We were running tubes at certain points. And uh, there was this one shot where this is uh, sitting next to a door and reaches out for the knob. And we really wanted just a little splurge, just a little bit of, you know, just a little something to come out right there. And we ended up not getting anything to quite come out of the wound area. However, we managed to soak like my entire living room with blood, none of which made it on camera. And, oh yeah, it's tricky stuff to deal with. And Chris warned me about it because he has had a lot more horror experience than I have. And he was like, this is, this is not gonna go well. And I, I really should have listened to him. And then at the same time, in retrospect, I'm, I'm most regretful that I didn't figure out, didn't have the wherewithal to somehow make, take advantage of this ginormous pool of blood. You know, should I have shot that in some way? But every, I just couldn't think of how, how to fit it in because it seems like, oh, that's production value, but not, not, not intentional. <laughs> I love that you mentioned that, though, because I'm sure Chris does have a lot of experience. You know, I love his death in Final Destination 3. Just a great splat. I think it's one of the great final deaths of all time, right? Oh, it's it's so it's 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 one of my favorites of the whole Final Destination franchise, truly. Yeah, that guy, yeah. So I had, you know, one of the things in the wound is him crawling around in this mop bucket. And okay, we have this as an idea, and I pitch him this, and he's on board, and he's like, but it's not gonna work. Like I'm not gonna actually be able to physically do that. And I was like, I disagreed with him. And I'm like, yeah, I think we, we can do this. And he's like, okay, let's go find a mop bucket and let's try all this out. And so we uh, found uh, someone, the mop bucket out in the valley that wanted to give it away. And it was really properly filthy, uh, which I liked. Linky didn't enjoy it as much as I did. But, uh, and we got out there and I flopped down on the mop bucket like I expecting him to and I almost broke a rib no was asking him to do was absolutely impossible and he was so right um and we ended up having to have like a platform built in bucket like this so it's all wood and we were supposed to be able to get a cushion in there too but we couldn't so he I don't know how much it really helped to be honest but all this is just to say that uh Chris was right and uh, that was a lot more difficult than I expected it. <laughs> um, we did write down some things about the mop bucket because we were like, wow, that's, we love that scene. Um, and just that, you know, that you always kind of have like a good comedic undertone or, you know, very blatantly comedic, even in something like The Wound that is more of like a horror, you know, short. You're like, we're still making it a little funny. Well, and of course, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that. I, I wonder if for the, for the when you first saw it, did you find it humorous? Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's such a relief. Because I watched it and then I was like, oh, Brooklyn, here's the link and sent it to them. And they were like, and then when we revisited it for to prepare for the interview and stuff, they were like, please ask, like, please like comment on um, <laughs> like how many like foot shots Chris managed to like get into that film because they were like that was honestly the funniest part to me is like not expecting just a foot to be on screen suddenly and I was like you're kind of right yeah I, I suppose you're talking about the insert and pretty although there's a bunch we we do we do a lot with a foot just because he doesn't he's lacking the one shoe so right 
yeah, I suppose I hadn't ever thought about how many, how I'm fetishizing Chris Lemke's foot, but you're right. I I don't know how I didn't find this is occurring to me. Um, no, it's so great that you uh, found it funny. Um, I remember I, we made it in 2019 and it got into Holly Shorts right before the pandemic. So I'm, in a way, I was like really lucky because I was able to see it uh, in a theater um, with a you know a crowd because nothing tells the truth more right than a room full of people and also it always feels like a, a lot of times in my experience people questioned like oh is an audience going to understand this will a viewer understand this but anytime you show it in the crowd I just feel like everyone's comprehension skills are so high and one of the th things that happened in the first 15, 30 seconds of that screening, someone laughed. And that sort of gave everyone permission to start laughing. And uh, that that just felt so good because I, I mean, my favorite kind of humor at this point is like, yeah, this is, I, you could totally think this was just a dark, self-serious, pretentious slog, but hopefully it's uh, having a bit of fun with that. Oh, absolutely, yeah even Brooklyn, because they typed up most of the questions and I was like going through the list and stuff and they were like, like had like a little asterisk and it was like, you should make a Quentin Tarantino foot joke here. And I was like, I'm going to pass on that. <laughs> no, uh, I also, I do think that Chris is a really, um, among all the other things, a really talented foot actor. I remember getting to that piece of footage where he starts- Footage, if you will. Oh boy. <laughs> well done, Tarantino. Uh, I remember finding that particular image and uh, really being like, oh, there's something. Well, we were also, that all that, that it was shot with this crazy periscope lens. That's what allowed us to get really, really low to the ground and shoot these macro close-ups. And it has this sort of almost underwater feel to it, uh, almost swimmy feeling to me at least. Um, and uh, yeah, what can I tell you? Lining up a shot of Chris Lemke's foot with a periscope lens that Panavision so kindly donated to my, our little production. Uh, you know, good stuff. Great way to spend an afternoon. I'm sure. I know I love like the, I know you posted like the one behind the scenes picture um, with like the steps when he's crawling up the steps and stuff towards oh. the end. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, I what's like what I'd give to be a fly on the wall at one of these <laughs> to just be watching and be like, I want to see. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Um, just insofar as, so we had done the mop bucket sequence, which uh, we were all like, oh, that seems pretty good. That seemed, as far as sequences go, we were all uh, like, that was tricky stuff. Uh, really uh, going back to just like the pleasure of working with like a crew, we were doing some uh, very challenging focus work, you know, to be that tight on things. And um, it was just a pain in the butt for Lemke and, uh, but everyone soldiered on. But we knew that when we had the stair sequence at the end, we had to top ourselves. And we got a hold uh, from, again, Panavision. We had this, my, my camera operator, on this short, speaking of, geez, I can't believe I haven't mentioned him yet, is James Goldman. And he's like, he's Ridley Scott's A camera operator. So ridiculous, right? He's just a friend who is willing to not just come out for free, but got me all the camera equipment. Uh, so just very lucky to 
have him aboard. Um, and when I had, again, the privilege of going to Panavision, Dan Sasaki, who uh, is responsible for the curating the lenses there and he makes lenses, was like, you ever seen this thing? And he shows me this oddly shaped, like L-shaped lens. And it's a periscope lens, so it can get you really, really low. Um, and he presented it to me as just a tool and offered me a weekend with it. Obviously, I was going to, this is perfect for our final stair sequence. I'm going to use this lens to get these impossible angles of climbing up the stairs right with Lemke to just be really with him as we climb the stairs and have this camera move in a way that I've never quite seen before. You know, a steady cam, but with this periscope lens rig, it probably would never have worked. We got to set, we tried, we put the lens on, and there's this huge line going straight through the image. Something had fallen out of alignment and we weren't able to use it. And we had sort of, this was gonna be our like big, impressive, fancy visual feast that I'm sure Celine Shiamo would appreciate. <laughs> and we couldn't use the tool. So we had a sequence that I designed around a tool, but that tool no longer uh, was at our disposal. But we did have James there with his Steadicam and uh, we, we, we did what we could. Um, uh, so yeah, to, to, to answer your question, to be a fly on the wall was like having everyone looking around, like, why isn't this thing working? I wonder what it would have looked like. Well, you have to revisit that someday. I'm going to manifest that you get an opportunity with that lens again someday, and we get to see what you do with it. Absolutely. Um, and just getting the opportunity to look through it and therefore devise a new way of looking at something, that was like enough, you know? Like whenever either like a piece of technology uh, that allows you to do something you didn't know was possible, or, you know, my favorite thing is just when like a movie, you know, any kind of piece of art reminds you like, wait, you can do that? And it, it sort of opens up a new window into a way of looking at something. That's That's just the best thing. That's what sort of keeps it all going. I love that. Um, okay, I think we can, you know, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know it's late. So, um, but I did want to point out, we had one good question. Um, the opening logo of the wound is like the elevator button that then we see later on. Um, and so we just wanted to know like what your, you know, your opinion on like Easter eggs like that, how you include them in your work and what you like in other films, maybe that do something similar. Right, right. I mean, that was just like the visual motif of that particular piece, right? The um, original, um, this is so pretentious, but the original title was Never Odd or Even, which is a palindrome. So it's the same, spelled, spelled the same going forward as it is spelled going backward. And I thought, oh, that's like a nice way to illustrate this character's journey, this cyclical nature of it is, you know, and visually, you know, obviously Goatly travels uh, halfway across the city and then travels back. My friend Mike Mohan talked me out of that title very wisely because he wanted, he wanted me to, he wanted it to be more accessible. And I, and I think he was quite right about that. Uh, also the palindrome nature of it. I mean, the more I started thinking about it, it's like, we had this idea that, you know, this is sort of about a breakup in a way, or a breakup that won't quite break up. 
but the analogy for me now is it's like very much indicative of a certain kind of relationship, a sort of uh, push pull back forth and perceived through the eyes of this rather ridiculous, her uh, heroic in quotes protagonist who, you know, he thinks he's the hero of this story. Uh, but in fact, he's, he's really quite pathetic and just sort of casting himself in that role, uh, which allowed us to do all this fun, uh, stylish stuff, you know, and sort of invoke genre. And so the idea of creating certain visual tropes, something that would pull you along and one something that was felt appropriate. I mean, okay, so we're, this is called The Wound, eventually. Uh, it's certainly about a guy with uh, a hole in his chest. Uh, and we're here to figure out the mystery of how and why this happened. Uh, so right there, we have this, you know, a bloody circle on this guy's chest. Um, we shot in the building that I live in. So I was going to necessitate him taking the elevator down. I guess I could have cheated it, but I wanted to make use of the hallways and the elevator seemed fun. And that insert was planned. And I remember thinking at the time, like, this feels like something. And then we went so far as to like shoot two different inserts of it, which again, terribly indulgent of us, but uh, so fun. I, I, quick tangent, I worked with a director recently, a pretty established director. I was just an editing consultant and he refuses to shoot inserts and finds them just to be always extraneous. And that's like a rule of his. For me, I happen to think they're, they can be so beautiful and it's like a, such a fun tool. Having said that, I don't think Celine Shiamma shoots too many. No, she does shoot inserts. She shoots her important inserts. Anyway, I hope the elevator button feels like something. It feels like a wound to me uh, in the same way that even the doorknob and the falling can, and we have all these circles. And you know, this movie is hopefully feels like this sort of never ending loop. And ideally, what you call would call Easter eggs or something, I, I just hope is a sort of, this imagery sort of invites you in. And the more familiar you are with the imagery, hopefully you start to have a relationship with the thing you're watching. And the idea of something as simple as circles feels like such a nice shorthand to that. Especially, it's just a short, so, you know, I don't know. It has to be, it feel pretty primal. There is what I would regard more of an Easter egg, which is more of like a hidden thing, which I can't take any credit for whatsoever. I had this friend who does special effects. God, I'm so I'm I have I'm so lucky to have these people in my life again. Mm -hmm. Um he had this notion that okay, you know, there's a shot where Chris Lemke in the in the beginning he's on the toilet and he it's his POV or over that filled sink, which is mm -hmm. for some reason filled to the brim. There is something happening inside that sink that was not my idea. Okay. Now I feel like I didn't notice it. Now I got to go back. Yeah, I, I, it's my favorite kind of special effect in a way because it calls no attention to itself, but I just think it's a lovely detail. Oh, now I got to know what it is. You can't just tell me that and then not expect me to know what it is. Oh, I have to know. Okay. Really disappointed, Tapia. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Again, it speaks to the subtlety of the work. Oh, yes. The like, um, almost like, is it like ink in the sink? Like the, 
it looks like ink or like a liquid. Yeah, that's CG. The guy who did the other effect in the movie, his name is Maciek Sokolski, and he was just like, well, his chest just burst, right? Well, there should be blood in the sink and it should be clouding up. And I was like, yeah, sure, absolutely. It has to, we have to have that. Um, and I think it's lovely, but uh, I also think it's like, I don't think anyone has ever noticed. But No, uh, I haven't noticed and I've seen the wound more times than I can count. So that's definitely an Easter egg. Cool. Well, I'm happy I was able to provide you with that. Oh, I feel so special. That's my little snippet. I'm like, guys, look, I have this exclusive information. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing this with me. Thank you, Tatiana. Uh, I really appreciate um, all of your very thoughtful questions. I'm glad I could think of some good things that, you know, you enjoyed answering. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So we can say goodbye. Bye, guys. Bye.